He loaded the last bag and slammed the trunk shut. He got in the car and checked the map on his phone one more time. They had a ferry to catch and he couldn't afford to get lost on these new roads. It had only been a few weeks since he'd left a growing consulting practice behind to follow a job opportunity for his wife. And now he was in Lake Leelanau, a town of 200 people in Northern Michigan. And he was feeling a lot of pressure to network, find clients and restart his business. Over his protests, his wife had booked a camping trip that weekend out on an island in the middle of Lake Michigan. Now they were driving past brilliant fall colors, rolling hills, and stunning blue lakes. But he didn't notice them at the time as his mind churned on how to do the work that he considered to be his calling in a place where he knew no one. I'm Amanda Catherine Roman. And I'm Nathan Havey. And the guy in the car in this opening is me. Welcome to the final episode of 10 Things You Should Know About Stakeholder Capitalism. Many of our guests made comments about the serendipitous aspects of their stories, as though they were being used for a greater purpose that sought to emerge. The chance encounter that sets in motion the events of this story is my own variation on that theme. Nathan is a big part of this story, and we left mentions of him in this episode not to promote him, but to give you a real understanding of how this case unfolded. And that is important because what lies ahead is a rare look at what the transformation towards stakeholder capitalism actually looked like at a $100 million coffee franchise called Big B Coffee. At the time of the camping trip, Big B Coffee had been around for 19 years and was run by a pair of co-CEOs, Bob Fish and Mike McFall. This story is told by three entrepreneurs at Bigby, Jeremy DeRyder, Laura Ike, and Mike McFall. And while it might be odd at first blush to call the co-CEO of the company an entrepreneur, that is nevertheless how this story begins. My name is Mike McFall. In October of 2014, my son, he had been talking about wanting to go camping It was going to be the very last weekend of the year that you could get to South Manitou Island. It was Saturday evening. We were using the campfire, making dinner. And because of the setup at South Manitou, where you have one communal campfire for four campsites, another couple joined us, ended up engaging the husband in a conversation about his work. His name was Nathan Havey, and the whole thing really resonated with me. We had reached a place in 2014 where we weren't really questioning our survival anymore. There wasn't a whole lot of stress and anxiety, at least financially. There was also this hollowness to our day-to-day, and we weren't sure what that meant. In hearing Nathan talk about purpose-driven companies, talking about the firms of endearment, I realized that there was an answer there. The next morning, I handed Nathan my card. I said, hey, I'd really like to learn more. I don't think our first conversation was more than about seven minutes. It was a conversation about, can you imagine the impact we could have on 2,000 baristas turning over at 50% a year 
And that was the first time that I had this like sort of rush of inspiration. Imagine the positive impact we could have on the world by having a positive impact on those thousand baristas. And I, I said, we got to sit down with my partner. Nathan recommended doing a survey of the stakeholders in our organization. And that's when I just said yes. My name is Jeremy DeRider. I've been with Bigby overall since 2000. I took it as a part-time summer job while I was attending Michigan State. And I fell in love with it. I ended up working at the store for three years. Bob recruited me and I did part-time data entry work. It's very much a foot-in-the-door gig. So the first culture survey, I'd been at the home office for more than a decade at that point. I was director of operations. I am Laura Ike. I joined Bigby in 2011 as a part-time barista in Clinton Township, Michigan. And then I joined the Bigby home office in 2012. I remember this legend floating around the office. This guy, Nathan, might call you and he might ask you what it's like. You should tell him the truth. We were managing the business how we thought businesses should be managed. The relationship between the employee and the employer was the employee shows up to work and does their job, gets paid, and the employee goes home. Somehow I knew that reading that survey was going to be a powerful moment. And I put it on my desk and I woke up early in the morning and I read it. We had a cultural value or at least we thought it was a cultural value at that point of be happy. And multiple people called out be happy as a joke. One of the more powerful lines I remember reading was that the relationship between the employee and the home office, us essentially, was an abusive relationship. Now, I still haven't gotten over that line. I ended up crying when I was reading that thing. I couldn't believe I was responsible for a company where the employees were talking about the company in such a negative way. We never intended to do that, but that was the end result of what we had built. There was all kinds of red blinking lights for us that we never really paid attention to. We had this, we called them midnight move outs. People would just be gone. They didn't even care enough to tell us they were leaving. They would just quit and move out. And then we had employees that worked with us for 12, 14 years who said they worried about their job on a daily basis. We rarely fired people, yet people still show up to work thinking today that they might lose their job. I got to the end of it, and I remember calling Bob pretty early in the morning, and I said, I think we got to trust in this. Because if not, we're just fooling ourselves. We agreed that we wanted to follow the recommendation and get up in front of the whole group and read it. We had a staff meeting that day. 
I remember every second of being in that room. They were sitting up in their director chairs, reading the report line by line, word for word. It was tense and it was emotional because while outwardly we projected the words that represented our cultural values at the time, which was be happy, have fun, make friends, love people, and drink great coffee, we were not living that life inside the home office. I remember my stomach hurting because I felt so bad for them that they now knew the truth. I remember feeling deep responsibility for not having ever told them that it was terrible. I didn't tell them that I was actively trying to not work there until they're like reading my words back at me. But also feeling like I'm going to be part of this change. Our leadership team started having weekly conversations every Tuesday, and it was confusing for a while. Nathan instituted a leadership training program, the very first book, Multipliers by Liz Wiseman. That book does a very good job of demonstrating that all of the things that you think are strengths and the things that helped you get to the position of authority that you're in are now actively working against you and your team We started our task forces, these groups made up of employees from all levels of the company that would come together and do work on some of our biggest issue areas, which were things like compensation, our review process, how people move up through the organization. That feeling of responsibility I had led to applying very quickly for one of the task forces. Nathan would sit in on these meetings I was in the one about stakeholder integration. And afterwards, you get a detailed report of his observations of the meeting. Talk about finding out where your blind spots are. The intent of these was to give the directors in particular practical leadership experience with a group formed from not just people that report to them. Culture change for me meant, I say it jokingly, but learning the ways that I suck. It was about developing self-awareness, and that was a painful but incredibly valuable process for me personally. I'll never forget the moment that one of the task forces reported out on compensation. The big scary ask was the compensation recommendation. We were going to ask the company to put $250,000 into the payroll system overnight to put people where they more appropriately should be. We prepped for that meeting. We brought it to the scary, scary boardroom. We introduced the idea. The number came out and it was a big number. And we just took it and said yes. They were like, this group's done the work. This group has a great image of how our company is and should be and they've been working so hard on this. We're gonna say yes. It was amazing. People started to believe that we were willing to allow decisions and very, very big decisions to be made by other people in the organization other than us. I think that was powerful for people to understand that we weren't kidding. Bob and Mike came up with an idea on how to reorganize the company, what they described as spheres. 
sort of like a Venn diagram style organizational chart. The leadership team at that time was dissolved and we created an entire new structure based on this way of being that we were aiming for. We were asked to write letters if we wanted to essentially apply to be a sphere leader. Anybody at any level was invited to do this. Doesn't matter who you work for or what you've done. You could now write letters expressing where it is that you think that you belong based on your experience and your strength and your passions. This is what I should be doing for the company. I thought in this crazy moment, I'm an entry-level employee. What do I have to lose? Let's just go for it. I wrote a letter that just talked about how I've never seen a job posting that felt like it literally already had my name on it. I've always known that my natural skill sets is in helping people work through and develop into something more. Turns out they were excited by what I had to say. I'd spent the last 11 years training in operations. I felt that based on my experience of growing up in the stores and all of the years of teaching our philosophy, that I was the right person to help tell that story. I write that letter. Boom, I got the job. So it's the beginning of 2016. We now have a new leadership team that we're calling the Beehive because each of these different spheres is a B word. So you've got the best sphere, the brand sphere, the bond sphere, the boost sphere, the brains sphere. And this new leadership team, with Nathan's guidance, started working on coming up with a higher purpose. We met bi-weekly in a public forum. We invited our whole company to come and participate in the conversation. We worked for a year. I think we ended up with 25 words decided upon after a year. Big B Coffee exists to support you in building a life you love. The work we had over all of those words was intense. For example, the word support, that's about providing you with the tools and the access, a community where you can build a life you love, not actually us doing it for you. It was important to have that debate and discussion because we knew at the end that we meant it and that we would fight for it because we were all in absolute alignment around our purpose. And so then once you have that purpose statement in place. What is this going to look like? If you act on your purpose, if you execute this on a daily basis through your business, what will you have accomplished in 10 years? Could it affect divorce rates? Could it affect homelessness and crime rates? Could we solve food shortages? Could we do something in the education sector? So it took us another year of open debate discussion in front of the whole company where we played out every scenario. It was a lot of big and challenging, complicated discussions that led us to our actual sweet spot. What we realized by supporting people and building lives they love through our business, that we could actually have an impact on workplace culture across America. That was a powerful realization. 
I think everyone could understand what cultural transformation looks like, what a before and after can start to feel like. We'd been in it for you know, a year and a half, almost two years. At that point, we'd seen that progress that we'd been making at the home office. Everyone knows people who hate going to work, have anxiety attacks on Sunday night. Workplace culture has a direct impact on your actual physical health, not to mention mental, emotional, and spiritual health. It felt like a worthy problem. It felt like something that we were up to. Because if we could do it for ourselves, we can share and do it for others. We're going to do that by accomplishing a couple of really powerful things. We are going to have 90% of the employees working within our organization who will rate us a 9 or a 10 and on the question, is Bigby Coffee supporting you in building a life that you love? If we can do that, then people are going to pay attention. And we're going to have other CEOs calling us and saying, how'd y'all do that? We believe that business can be done better if you're working in this more loving environment. We have to do our jobs well, and we have to protect this working environment that we're in. I loved the work we were doing on culture. Really thrived off of it, in fact. But I took this job as the Brand Sphere director with no marketing experience. Just what I'd learned over the years of being a part of the home office. I was struggling. Our store sales numbers were not strong and hadn't been strong for the preceding few years. I found myself called into an unscheduled extra meeting with Bob and Mike and Laura Ike, director of the Boost Sphere. Jeremy was in a position that he was not excelling at and was not happy in and was not powerful in. Bob and Mike and I were trying to coach him through it, and eventually we realized we couldn't coach him through it. He was in the wrong spot, and there wasn't another spot for him because his old spot had been filled, and we didn't know where he could go. I was already nervous walking in, not in my stomach. That feeling of adrenaline, it's like a metallic taste in your mouth. I remember Bob's jaw being set, rigid, like what I read as anger. And Laura, who was my safe person, because we just got along so well together, she was delivering really cold, hard truth. I'm about to lose my job. They presented a series of options. Leave the company now and take six months of full pay. Leave the company now and take 12 months of half pay. Leave the company now and they would support going back to school. We were trying to support him in building a life he loves, even though it wasn't going to be through Bigby Coffee anymore. My heart was beating very, very fast and I was very, very sweaty because this is someone I care so much about. I started with the home office when I was 23. <laughs> These people that I've been practically raised by, and you know they want to fire me, and I'm like, nope, you can't do that. I had real conviction around the fact that I belong at Big B, that I was going to retire from Big B, 
and that that was not how my story ends. The group said, go write your dream job. Because it might be here. We just might not know that it's your dream job. Jeremy wrote out a dream role that happened to be perfectly aligned with Boost, which is my team. He wanted to be an instructor in the Leadership Institute that we had dreamed up. He wanted to enjoy his everyday. He wanted to be supporting people and building lives they love. It was all of the Boost things in that dream job. And so all of a sudden, Bob, Mike, and I were faced with He chose none of the above for the choices that we had offered him. You got to be careful what you wish for when you're doing visioning work. The preceding August, I had written the words that in two years I would be free of the day-to-day management of the brand sphere. I literally used the word free of to give you a glimpse into how I was feeling at the time. I had known I'd wanted to move toward doing leadership development work. And so I wrote down my dream job description, which referred to teaching at the Big B Coffee Leadership Institute, being a founding instructor. He ended up choosing to stay in the organization. He took a massive pay cut, but he is now in a position that I think he wakes up every day absolutely loving. I went from being the breadwinner in the family to not the breadwinner in the family. It meant having to defend the people who were going to fire me, gave me a pay cut to my family. It was easy for me to question, like, is this the right thing? Am I crazy to do this? It hurt being demoted, not just financially, but like it hurt my pride. But I knew that it was the right decision because I knew where I wanted to go. I had written down a moonshot statement for myself, which is to laugh at home every day and to die knowing that I've helped no fewer than one million people to build a life they love. And working in the boost sphere, that means that that's now my day-to-day job. To have the opportunity to become a coach to other home office staff members, to work directly overseeing the leadership forums, that's my day-to-day that I'm getting paid for. This was a crappy detour that would lead me back to exactly where I wanted to go. Across America, starting at... Breaking news tonight, millions of Americans ordered to shelter in place as the coronavirus pandemic spreads. Residents told to stay in their homes and avoid contact for the next three weeks. The week before March 16th was a weird week at the Bigby Coffee home office. (laughs) I had just gotten back from a vacation where I had started to notice people wearing masks. As the week progressed, hearing the news, I became sort of more and more conscious of like how much hand sanitization I'm doing. And by 5 p.m. Monday, we had shifted to a fully working remotely office. I sent out what I think was technically my first COVID update. Please don't come back to the office. Come in and grab things that you need. And other than that, we're working from home until further notice. At that time, I remember thinking, it'll be a couple weeks and then we'll be back. There was no like wondering whether this was a real thing or not in Michigan. Because, you know, if we had hospitals with like seven refrigerated trucks lined up outside of the hospital because 
They didn't have enough room in the port. Bob and I were waking up every morning at, at 6 a.m. and we were on the phone with each other at 6.30. Where's your brain at? What, you know, what did you read? What did I read? It was crisis management. If we keep everybody at full payroll and our revenue goes to zero, I mean, we're going to be out of cash in a, a matter of no time. We may not have a company in the end. So between March 16th, which was a Monday, and March 20th, I went and got myself basically an HR degree and learned about all the differences between layoffs, leave of absence, all these things. And the question was, how do we take care of our people the best? Wednesday, Bob and Mike took a 70% pay cut. The rest of the leadership team took a 50% pay cut. Everybody else taking at least a 30% pay cut. We told our staff everything, every step of the way. I was doing multiple emails a day, letting them know what we're talking about. We explained leave of absence versus layoff allowed them to keep their benefits in place. At the time, it meant they didn't have to go searching for other jobs to prove with the unemployment people. Friday morning, 65% of our company was put on leave of absence indefinitely. The thing I promised everybody was they'd get to keep their health insurance, which at a time of a global pandemic was maybe the most important thing we could do. The communication surge happened immediately. Suddenly there are daily town halls with the owner operators. The employees put on unpaid leave uh, are getting daily emails from Laura letting us know sort of what's going on in the world at large and with COVID. And then doing the Ask Me Anything sessions with Bob and Mike knowing that our healthcare benefits were still being taken care of by the company. That was a really good way to keep people whole during that time. As soon as we started seeing that revenue was bottoming out and then started to come back, we started bringing people back. Our business turned around very, very quickly. Bigby, as of today, is in the best space it's ever been financially. We're seeing year-over-year growth of 25 to 30%. Those are numbers that nobody ever sees, especially a company our size. I love my job. I love my company. I can't imagine working anywhere else now. I told that to our co-CEOs, Bob and Mike, you've ruined me for working anywhere else because I just love what we do and what we stand for and what we're pursuing. We've taken something on here that is mind-boggling in its scope, but I believe we're on track. Flash way back to first day coming into the home office for the part-time data entry job. Bob Fish sits me down and asks me, what are your goals for your position? I didn't know how to formulate a response. The process of being part of our leadership forums, doing the cultural work and all that introspection, all of that building of self-awareness led me to understanding who I want to be. Me knowing who I want to be is an essential part of building a life I love. And we would all argue at Bigby Coffee that it's an essential part for anyone to build a life they love. That's now my day-to-day job. Every day, I'm getting up and working on my moonshot. 
I know that I'm on the path to achieve my dreams. On the six essential competencies of stakeholder capitalism that we introduced in the last episode, Bigby really only has game in three of them. And even then, it depends on who you ask. And yet, they are already being recognized as one of the rising stars in the movement for a new paradigm of business. And that's okay. Again, it seems to us that stakeholder capitalism has to be about reaching higher, again and again, celebrating progress to be sure, but also being honest about where you are still operating with old paradigm assumptions and practices. This transition is a long game, and Big B's progress to date is thanks to the leadership of Bob, Mike, Jeremy, Laura, and a large and growing number of others in the company who resonate with the power of the ideas that we've discussed in this podcast and who want to make their mark at Big B and beyond. And so, dear listener, we've reached the end of our journey together. You have a choice to make now. We invite you to join in the global movement for stakeholder capitalism by choosing to become an entrepreneur in your company. What's in it for you is a profound shift in the level of meaning that your work has and the deep satisfaction of knowing in your bones that you are using your life well. Oh, and it might also be the key to your next promotion. What I wish everybody in our organization understood is the people in the organization that are accelerating the organization are the people that are bringing us their true opinion. Uh, of course, I think my idea is the right idea. When somebody stands up and says, uh-uh, you are not thinking about this from the right perspective, it is painful. But that's the person we got to have around the table with this. Maybe your boss isn't like that, but Mike wasn't either six years ago. And what changed him was just me sharing some stories around a campfire. And that's the 10th thing you should know about stakeholder capitalism. All it takes to start a transformation process are a few good stories. The stories that, incidentally, are now produced, organized, and easily shareable in the 10 episodes of this podcast. So here's our challenge to you. Share the 10 things you should know about stakeholder capitalism with other people in your company and start the stakeholder capitalism transformation. And if you want to do more, then join Nathan and I and all the people you heard from in this podcast and dozens more like them in the Entrepreneur Accelerator. It is the place for people who want to make their mark and create a world that works for everyone. 10 Things You Should Know About Stakeholder Capitalism is a project of the Institute for Corporate Transformation. This episode was edited by Nathan Church and produced by Heavy Pro Cinema and featured music from Ono Khan, Young Oceans, Stephen Guntheins, Joe Blankenberg, and Mr. Moo. 10 Things You Should Know About Stakeholder Capitalism is written and directed by Nathan Heavy. The Intrapreneur Accelerator is an on-demand, self-paced, professional development program that will train you to effectively transition your company to stakeholder capitalism. In the program, you'll learn a proven process for leading change, regardless of your title. You'll assess your company's performance on the six elements of stakeholder capitalism, and based on those results, 
You'll design and execute a pilot project to make your company better. The rest of the details are available at intrapreneuraccelerator.biz. That's it. If you want to reach Nathan and I, or if you just want to keep in touch, come find us at the Institute for Corporate Transformation at institutect.com. Thank you for listening to the 10 things you should know about stakeholder capitalism. Now go make your mark.